So Money Episode 719, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host Leanne Wong. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. April 20th, 420. You know what that means. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. It means it's my best friend, Bethany Bomback's birthday. Happy birthday, girlfriend. She was my very first roommate in college. Friend for life. Mom of two. You should follow her on Instagram, Bethany Bomback. She is a an avid runner and workouter. She makes me feel like such a couch potato most days. But she's just a really awesome, kick-ass woman, mom, female. And I'm really proud to call her a friend for life. And um, happy birthday to her. And yes, it's 420, which we always laugh about because she is the last person on earth who would ever smoke a doobie. But um, there she is. Her birthday's on 420. We love you, Bethany. So Money Nation says happy birthday. I wanted to also take a little bit of time to say thank you to everybody who's been engaging with me not just here on the podcast, but, you know, I'm trying to build a bigger community on social media. I find that it's, I'm I'm sure you can relate. It's so hard, right? To like keep tabs on all the different platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I gave up on Snapchat well before any of the Kardashians did. So I feel very much ahead of the curve on that. So I called that before any, before was it Kylie Kendall gave it up? Don't do Snapchat, but I have had a lot of fun with Instagram. I think because Instagram is a happy place. It seems to me most people there are there. Oh, yeah, we get sort of people's best versions on Instagram, but there's no politics. There's no, there, there's no trolling as far as I can tell. I don't have probably that many followers yet. But I I like it. It's a good place. It's also a quick place to communicate. I know many of you have been reaching out, direct messaging me there, leaving comments. And because I've sort of zeroed in on Instagram, I am there more than I am other places. So if you need to catch me quick and ask me like, it's happened. You'll be surprised how available I am. People have said, hey, Farnoosh, I'm going in for a job interview tomorrow. And it's my second interview. I know money's going to come up. What should I do? Or, you know, I've helped people with... With money and relationships. Like, I'm kind of at your disposal on Instagram. I won't say all the time, but more than other platforms. So, if you're not following me there, I would love to connect with you. So, speaking of bringing value to you, I have with me a co host today who is fantabulous. Uh, Leanne Wong and I actually met on Facebook, which I know I just said, you know, I'm not everywhere, but um, I do check into social media multiple times a day. And Leanne uh, is a listener. She connected with me on Facebook. We actually had coffee a few weeks ago because, uh, you know, that's how connections are done. I feel like on the one hand, social media has made us disconnected in some ways because we're not seeing each other in person. But I try to gonna make a point to take it to the next level, right? So if you're local and you want to meet and we have common ground, like let's have a coffee. Uh, that's what we're on this planet to do, right? Is to connect. So a little bit more about Leanne. I'm going to brag about her before bringing her on officially. But she is a leadership and career coach. 
She has over eight years of experience helping professionals align their personal and professional goals. She provides expertise to founders and leaders on building high-performing teams and cultivating cultures with mindfulness at the heart. She is a founding partner of a boutique tech recruiting firm coaching teams at Cornell Tech MBA Startup Lab. And she's also a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. So I think it's a great pairing for us since I come with sort of the money perspective. She comes with leadership, career, life perspective. Leanne, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. It's so amazing to be on with you. I'm so excited to be sharing your expertise and you with our audience. And I know that while you are running this boutique tech recruiting firm, you're also working on your own brand and your own coaching practice. So how are, how is, how are you handling both worlds? It can be a lot at times, um, but you sort of take it step by step and just focus on the task at hand, like one by one. So it's been really amazing. And, you know, I, I didn't share this with you when we had coffee the other day, but I've been listening to to you for about three years. And, you know, three years ago, I was in a very like bad financial state. I had about $20,000 in debt and really just got super aggressive and committed to getting myself into a much stronger financial place. And listening to you and the So Money community literally every morning helped me to, to keep motivated. Um, and I am like crushing my financial goals today. <laughs> Rock on. So let's get specific. I didn't know this. So tell me how you got rid of that $20,000 in debt. What was probably the one big game changer? Honestly, it was it was commitment. It was it was the knowledge that I wanted to be a business owner one day and I had to take control and you know, I had to get ahead of my financial path. And so I started really aggressively paying down that debt. I lived with roommates for two years. So, you know, living in New York, it's really expensive to live on your own. So I had roommates for two years. Um, I listened to so many every single morning just to have that money mindset. And then I I did small things like no more nails. Like I, I used to spend a lot of money on, you know, things like getting my nails done. So I stopped doing that. I used to spend a lot of money on restaurants and going out. Food in New York is really expensive. So I started doing things like meal prep on Sundays and, you know, having friends over for dinner instead of going out and spending you know, $100 on, on a dinner out. So those small changes really added up. And I got really clear with the things that I wanted to create. So, you know, some of my financial goals were to build an emergency flow number one, pay down my debt, and then build an emergency fund, and then really start contributing and saving for retirement. So finding ways of automating that was was really key. I'm starting to do this now. I'm asking co-hosts like yourself to come with a question that you may have that I can probably hopefully help you with. And what's your question? Yeah. So as a female entrepreneur, considering marriage at this point, I really want to understand the basics of prenuptials, how you approach it, how you handle negotiations gracefully, because it can be a really touchy topic before marriage. So that that's one. And then joint bank accounts or separate bank accounts. I you know have separate accounts from my partner, David, but um, I'm wondering if there are any benefits at all to having a joint bank account. And you know, if so, what, what are they? Well, to, to your first question, 
about prenups, you know, yes, it's delicate. And sometimes people think that prenups are just for the high net worth people and couples that are maybe you're marrying into wealth or you're both coming to the marriage of a lot of wealth. But, you know, if marriage is a beginning of a new life together, there's so much that could transpire. You could, like you, you know, you're at the beginnings of starting your business. That could and that will grow and you will become wealthier over time. And, you know, when I was writing When She Makes More, we covered prenups in the book. And to research it, I interviewed divorce attorneys. And one particular attorney kind of summed it up really nicely and neatly when I asked him, you know, when do you know you should have a prenup? And he said, when you don't agree with your state's laws as far as divorce proceedings. So if you live in a state where like California without a prenup and you're getting divorced, each member of the relationship gets half of everything, half of the money um, that was earned in the relationship, half of the savings, half of the, you know, the proceeds of the house, half of the investments, no matter who was working, who was making more, who ran a business, who didn't. Nine states, I believe, are community property states like California, where without a prenup, everything is split 50-50. If that doesn't sound fair to you, or that sounds like that's not going to happen without a big fight and a lot of legal costs, then a prenup would be in your favor. And, you know, divorce proceedings can take a lot of time. They can take a lot of money because there are a lot of questions that are going to come up and debates and disagreements. And if you can kind of create a template or a roadmap for yourselves before you get married, that will alleviate a lot of that stress, a lot of that money, a lot of that hassle you know, in the event of a divorce. And no, of course, to your second question, sort of like, you know, no one wants to think about a divorce, but the reality is that sometimes, many times marriages break up. And I think the way you talk about it or the way you bring it up is, you know, let's, I just, you know, I feel like we're, we're getting really caught up in the wedding planning and, you know, the, the, the good stuff about getting married, which I really want to focus on, but I also want to be smart and I want to protect us so it's not about me versus you, but I think that we should, um, it would behoove us to have something in writing for the future in the event. I hope we never refer to it. I hope it like, this is the only time we talk about it, but blame me. Be like, I, you know, Farnoosh said on the podcast that it's really important to have a prenup if you don't agree with, you know, your state's laws as far as divorce. And plus, even if we do agree with the state, there's still going to be a lot of stuff that's, that could come up that could keep us, you know, tied in, in court with legal fees for years. So let's just like come up with something clean and template it and, you know, just have something in writing so that down the road, God forbid something happens, we have something to fall back on and we can alleviate the stress and the money and the pain. And especially if you're coming into the marriage with a lot more assets or assets that you want to protect, does that help? Or am I still leaving a lot of questions on No, that's really helpful. Do you think that you could bring that up and your and David would be okay with it? Yeah, it's it's actually something that we've talked about in the past and you know, I've 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 spoken with some, you know, estate attorneys and just how to structure it and um it, it's it's definitely something that we're both interested in and and we're both really rational people and we want to, you know, approach marriage in a very logical way and and sometimes it can be kind of un like very unromantic to to talk about this, but it really happens. So I I'd rather be prepared than not. Yeah. And, you know, I think if you, 
use expressions like, it would just make me feel better, more at ease. I mean, I don't think your partner is going to not want you to feel those things, right? So if that is the truth, say that. I think that that's one way to make it seem less combative or like you're just doing this because you know, you you suspect the marriage is going to end. Like that's not what it's about. It's just that, you know, we're being rational. I love you so much that God forbid that we, you know, have to part ways. And by the way, couples break up for all sorts of reasons. I think sometimes when we think of divorce, we think of like one person doing something terrible to the other person. And that's why couples break up. But sometimes it's just, you know, you grow apart and you remain friends, but you you know, you don't want to be married anymore. And in that case, you'd still want to have a prenup. But let's move on. Let's move on because you have another question, which is joint or separate bank accounts. <laughs> what are the what are your thoughts and what are the benefits? Well, I'll tell you, Tim and I have mostly separate accounts. We have one joint account and we're okay. Like that works for us. I think you got to do whatever works for you. But I will say that I lean towards mostly having um, having a separate account in addition to a joint account. I personally don't really want to have just one single joint account. I think that even when I work with couples sometimes or I hear from couples about their grievances around money and the arguments they have, I usually discover through talking to them that there is just this one account, a joint account, and they're feeling a little suffocated with this one account that I, and I, and so when I suggest each of them having their own independent accounts, that suddenly alleviates so much of the stress and, um, you know, the, the awkwardness around the money. Because I think when you have one joint account, you feel like you're tiptoeing, you have to ask for permission to spend on things that you normally were paying for yourself with freedom. If you think about it, we're getting married later in life. And like, especially you and David, you're getting married both with uh, you each having your careers, you're having your assets, your savings, your investments, you're used to making financial decisions on your own. And that's one of the challenges of getting married is now you're two and you're a team and it's about you know negotiating and finding common ground when it comes to your financial strategy and goals. But I do think that if you can carve out still some financial autonomy for him, for you, then I just, I, I see it. I think it will eliminate fights to some, to, to an extent. It will allow you to both feel very much still independent in your financial lives. And that goes a very long way in creating harmony in the marriage. Having that joint account to pay for the joint bills and automating those expenses. That's a nice, clean way to deal with that. And then if you each kind of take a percentage of your salaries, every paycheck or every month, put it into your own savings account and that money you use for your self-care, buying gifts, whatever, uh, buying gifts for each other, that's probably a good way to, to, to do it. I know some couples swear by the joint account and, you know, till death do they part, but that would never fly in our marriage. And so to some extent, you have to kind of think about, well, what... What would make us comfortable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I, you know, my, my parents, I grew up in a household where my mother was the breadwinner and um, my parents always had really, they had separate accounts and, you know, they paid for things with the household, not through a joint account, but through their own personal checking. And so I wonder if it, like, I feel comfortable with that, but there are some people that, you know, that I'm talking to that swear by having joint accounts and, and I'm just, 
you know, I'm sort of just considering it, but that, that feels right. It's so much also to do with your upbringing, like you said, because I was at dinner, the, uh, you know, one time with another couple, we got to pay the bill, the bill came and I don't know how it came up, but the look of shock on the, the other husband's face when I told him that Tim and I have separate credit cards he was like, so wait a minute, like, who, do you just like Venmo each other then? I'm like, no, it's not like 50-50. Like sometimes I said, well, without getting into it, you know, I don't think he knew that I make more and there was a pay gap, you know, like I make more than my husband. And so there isn't this expectation that we're just going to split everything down the middle. I think with my with my couple friend, they probably had salaries that were more on par with each other. So that I think also matters. Um, if you have similar salaries, then it's a lot easier to just split everything or all your shared expenses versus if you have one spouse who makes a lot more or a lot less. I think in that way, in that case, you have to kind of come up with your own system that feels fair, even though it's not 50-50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's also kind of like throughout the throughout the marriage, the situations may change. Like right now, David and I are sort of on par, but if my business took off, you know, and I made a lot more money or, you know, if he started to really accelerate in his career and made a jump, he could be ending up making more money than, than me. So it's, I guess it's kind of one of those things that you sort of have to keep checking in about the rules of engagement. Yeah, it's, it's going to be in flux. And I know that the couples that are just flexible and keep talking are the ones who ultimately thrive as opposed to the ones who are like, this is the way it has to be all the time. And, you know, I think you have to be willing to be nimble in your financial life together and, and look forward to those uh, days, years when the, the financial weight shifts. I always say, I'd love for Tim to be a breadwinner one day for a while. It's a great feeling. I love it. It's a great honor to be able to support the family in the way that I do. But something that I think each person in the marriage should experience at least once. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a good feeling. All right. So moving on, Nate has a question about credit scores. And he's confused about the FICO credit score, which we all know is sort of like the the, the credit score, 90% of banks and lenders refer to your FICO credit score. It's a number between 300 and 850. The higher the number, the higher the score, the more likely you'll qualify for good loans and get low interest rates. But he says there's also this thing called the CAR score or the CAR credit score. What are the differences and how does this impact, say, leasing a vehicle? So this is a bit of a technical question. I don't know, Leanne, if you've ever purchased a car. You live in New York, so I don't expect a yes no, to this, this was question. a complete doozy for me. <laughs> and to be truthful, I had to look this up a little bit because I wasn't, I'm fully aware of the FICO credit score, was, have heard of the car score. And here's what I found out. I think this is a good a good lesson for all of us. So the FICO credit score, like I mentioned, is sort of the granddaddy of credit scores. It's what most lenders look at, 300 to 850. And then there's another score, the FICO auto score that is specific to auto lending. I think that it's 
going to have a very similar impact on your lending qualifications. The one thing to note is that while the FICO score is between 300 and 850, the auto credit score is between 250 and 900. From what I understand, the data that determines this auto score is based on trending data and it spans for up to 30 months of your of your credit behavior. So the hope is that this score kind of captures how your credit behavior is evolving. So if you're paying your bills well every month, it will be reflected in the score. If you're trending downward, if you're doing not so hot, the score will reflect that. I know when I was applying for a car loan, couple of years ago, it was my FICO credit score that, to my knowledge, is what they were looking at and probably also pulling my car credit score, but still the FICO score was predominant. So at the end of the day, here's what I would just say. Make sure you're paying your bills on time every single month. Make sure that your debt to credit ratio is low, below 30% preferably 0%. In other words, month to month, you're not carrying a balance. That's important. Those two factors together, paying your bills on time and keeping a low debt balance is over 50% of your credit score calculation. And I'm sure that is also true with your car score. As far as how this impacts your ability to get a car lease, just assume that this is a number that, you know, car lenders will look at, auto financing banks will look at. Uh, according to Bankrate, the best auto loans with the best interest rates are going to people with FICO credit scores of at least, I believe, 720 or higher out of 850. Like I said earlier, check your score before you go in for any of these car loan application so that you know where you stand. If you're sitting across the desk from the auto lender and he's like, well, we can offer you a, you know, 4% interest rate and you're, you know, you have a top notch credit score, try to negotiate. Be like, well, I know that my score is in the 99th percentile. So can you do better? And I actually did that with my car loan last time I went to get one. I knew my score was top tip top. I did some research online. I knew that some banks were offering a slightly smaller percentage. And he the guy at the Volvo dealership was telling me I could get, you know, whatever, three point whatever. Now it would be much higher because that was a while ago. Rates have gone up. But I said to him, you know, I've seen rates be better elsewhere. And he goes, well, let me see what I can do. And he did bring it down um, a little bit, which saved me, you know, 50 bucks a month or whatever it did. So worth it to just do your homework before you go and apply for any loan. Know your score. Do you know your score, Leanne? Um, I am in the... So my FICO score is around 760. 760. Good. So you're going to get the best interest rates on any on any loan you apply for. Good luck, Nate. And let us know if you have any other questions. Mary has a question. Leanne, do you want to read it for us? I have baby number two on the way. And I'm wondering, is it better to have two 529s or a different vehicle where I combine the funds to have a bigger principal and then the interest can compound faster? Yes. So Mary asks this question on Instagram of all places, of course. And I would say that Yeah. If you pull the money and have one fund as opposed to two different investments, there is a good chance all things equal that the money will compound more and you'll have more in the bank, you know, at the end of your 
term for investing in that in that account. But 529s are very unique and special in that the money that grows in the account, you can then take it out of the account once you're ready to put it towards eligible college expenses without any tax burden. That's a huge savings. You know, at that point, what's it's like, you know, I don't know, is it a it's not really easy to say because it's going to depend on the compounding in that single portfolio and just how well the market does. If you still pay taxes on it, will you come out with more money in the end than having it having two separate 529s that, you know, maybe didn't compound as well, but did benefit from having a tax shelter when they came out. So that's basically what you have to weigh. That's those are the two things you have to sort of think about. I would say too that if you have just one fund, you can do that in one 529. If your children are spread out enough in age where, you know, you could use it to pay for the eldest child's college and then switch the beneficiary over to baby number two when he or she is ready to go to college, I'd say if they're at least four years apart, you could do that. You could have one fund, save save as if you're saving for two kids in that one fund, and then have it grow, use it initially for the first child, then change the beneficiary to the second child. But I think my preference is still to have two accounts, one for each child, and for a few reasons, especially if they're spread apart in age, because you want to make sure that the mixture of stocks and bonds and investments in each portfolio is risk adjusted for the timeline that you're saving for. So if your older child, um, you know, is going to be going to school in 10 years and your second child is going to be going to college in say 15 years, you know, you would presumably have a different mix of bonds and stocks and investments because you could be a little more risk-taking with the second child for now. Um, So that's just one reason. And then the other reason is keep in mind that separate accounts for your children also provide more gift tax leeway. You know, 529 contributions are treated as gifts from you to your child. And the IRS limits that to $15,000 per child each year. And if you have two children, you can do that for each child. If you have one at 529, then you're limited to that $15,000 as your annual gift exclusion. Two accounts, it's $15,000 per account, total of $30,000. And then I read at savingforcollege.com, which is a really good resource for anyone who's looking to learn about college savings options, 529s. They've got really great tools and calculators and a community there to tap into to ask questions and, and get further educated. When it comes time to apply for financial aid for your child, assuming you didn't have enough money in the 529, you still might want to apply for, you still want to maybe fill out the FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid. If you have just one 529 account that's intended for two children, but remember, for the time being, it can only be designated for one beneficiary. All that money is going to be counted against their financial aid eligibility. But the rules there aren't super black and white. Sometimes the impact of the 529 is not as significant, uh, depending on the college. So lots to consider. Um, the other cool thing that I that I actually found out because this this was such a an interesting co- conversation and question, but you can really get started early and you can start a five twenty nine even before your child is born, which I actually didn't know. And you can create one in your name, and then when your child is born, transfer it to to them. 
Yes, we did this for Evan before he was born. About six months before he was born, we started a 529, got a little bit of a head start. But you're totally right. Anybody can open up a 529, put it in their name. And then once children come into their lives, you can change the beneficiary. But uh, Mary, congrats. Congrats on baby number two. Your life will never be the same. (laughs) (laughs) For the better. Also, good luck. Trish has a question. She needs help, Leanne. She has been suffering from a lack of savings. She hasn't really been able to save much and prepare for her future. She's now 60 years old or about to turn 60. She's a young 60, she says, and I believe her. She says, though, that she's making more money than ever before, which that sounds fantastic. I want to be 60 making more money than ever (laughs) before, right? read somewhere that the peak earning age for women is 39. Wow. She says, I still have a little credit card debt to pay off. I also have a 401k. She has an IRA, but hasn't made any contributions. She has a 23-year-old daughter who is graduating and will have student loans to pay off. So I think she's feeling a little bit uh, nervous about that. Maybe considering helping her daughter out. She's also overwhelmed because she lives with her mom and she is scared of the day when she herself, Trish, will have to find another place to live and how she is going to afford it. So I think, Leanne, it just sounds like she needs to hunker down and save. She's making more money now than ever before. Get rid of that credit card debt so you're not paying any of that nasty interest and start paying yourself, Trish. Like you said, you're a young 60, you know, um, 60 is the new 30 and just start to save aggressively in your, in your savings account for a rainy day. Because like you said, you might have to move out and get your own place. And if you have to rent a place, you'll have some cash, some runway and put some money in those IRAs, you know, because you're over the age of 50, you can put catch-up contributions both in the IRA and your 401k. Your 401k, you can invest, I believe, up to $24,000 this year. And your IRA, an additional thousand. So for a total of um, $6,500. So if you have that money, put it in there. And honestly, as far as your daughter is concerned, her student loans are her business. You know, you got to take care of yourself. If you're going to be paying your daughter's debt, you're never going to have time to save for yourself. You're not going to have a capacity to yeah. save for yourself. Yeah, that's right. What do you think, like, Leanne? Like when they say on the airplane, you got to put your ox- oxygen mask on first. Your daughter is going to college. She's going to be self-sufficient. She's going to be just fine. Um, and, you know, putting some money into retirement savings and, and to that rainy day fund is, is really, um, I would say, the focus right now. Yes, yes, yes. She is a member of the sandwich generation, right? This is like classic sandwiched mom where she has her daughter whom she feels a little financially obligated to help out. Her mother as well. You know, as far as this home that they live in, though, I do wonder if she says, you know, if her mom um, no longer is living with her anymore or um, passes away, like what happens to her? And I'm like, well, my question for Trish is, is this house, is there a mortgage on this house? Is this a rental? Because this house could still be yours, couldn't it? I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing here, but maybe, you know, she might even benefit working with a financial planner, even if it's on like a monthly retainer basis to help her get squared away, establish some savings accounts, have a plan for her future. 
future. Also go through any of the fine print as far as the properties, the assets that her mother might be um, leaving her. Good time to talk to your mom about that. If she hasn't, like, does she have a will? You know, does she have assets that she'd like for you to take over? You know, what about her bills? This is the sort of stuff now that should be on your to-do list. Like when they say on the airplane, you got to put your oxygen mask on first. Your daughter is going to college. She's going to be self-sufficient. She's going to be just fine. Um, and, you know, putting some money into retirement savings and, and to that rainy day fund is, is really, I would say, the focus right now. Yeah. Put herself first. And it can be so overwhelming when you've got so many things to do. And so, Trish, I think that, you know, I just want to acknowledge the fact that you've written in and you're seeking help and you're asking those right questions because you're going to be able to put a, a plan together and meet your goals. Good luck, Trish. We're rooting for you. And last but not least, Leanne, we have a question from Melanie. She's a millennial. Do you associate with millennials? You know, it's it's funny because I am part of the millennial generation, but I think I'm an I'm an older millennial. So there are some millennial tendencies that I'm, you know, I, I definitely sort of identify with, but other other times I'm I'm like, oh, that's so millennial and not not anything like me. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big group. <laughs> and uh, I was born in 1980. So I'm right on the border, I suppose, of millennial and Gen X. So I'm kind of in no man's land, I suppose. I'm in, I'm in a whole, I guess, demographic of my own, along with my other 1980s compadres. Anyone else in 1980? I, I was 1985. Yeah, I feel like there's, there's sort of like the 80s millennials and then the, and then the 90s and 2000s. Like, there are millennials who, always had technology. I mean, I remember when my dad came home with Atari and that was a big deal. And then he came home with a computer and we were like, what is this thing? Okay. How is this even, it's a huge box. It's taking up a lot of ugly space in the living room. Do you remember having a pager? (laughs) Oh yeah, the pager. I used to, oh my gosh. Okay. So this is so, maybe you can relate to this. When I was in high school, nobody had cell phones. When I had to call my mom or get my mom's attention because I, I need to get picked up from you know track practice or whatever. And I was never allowed to take rides with friends because my mom thought that that would just be a quick <laughs> death because <laughs> she was right. Getting in a car with another teenager is probably the least safest thing you can do. She insisted that I call her. And sometimes, you know, I didn't want to go to the office and ask to use the phone. I didn't have a cell phone. So I would call collect on the payphone. And the operator would come on and say, who am I? I would type in the number, right? I would dial the number, my mom's mom's house number. And then as soon as um, you know, the operator goes, Will you accept this collect call from? And I would go, Mom, pick me up. I'm at the gym. <laughs> and that way she wouldn't have to accept the charge. And she would just know that I'd that I was ready to get picked up. And that was how I would for free. I was so money back then, right? What a great life hack. Those were the <laughs> days. All right. Melanie says that she's a millennial. She has her finances in order. High five, Melanie. She has an emergency fund. She maxes out her Roth, her 401k. She has an HSA, which is a health savings account. She also has a brokerage account. My goodness. All right. So what do you want help with, Melanie? Here's her question. She says, with her HSA account, 
is there a website where she can go and compare HSA accounts? She says that her company lets her choose what bank to go with. She currently pays no fees for the HSA, but it doesn't let her invest that money. So where can she invest her HSA with low fees. And so just to take a step back for everybody. So not all HSAs are created equal. And HSA, again, is a health savings account. If you have a high deductible insurance plan, often you are allowed to open up an HSA account to pay for medical co-pays and out-of-pocket expenses. Some accounts, you can invest that money actually in mutual funds and other sorts of investment vehicles, but not all, like she says, not all HSA accounts allow for that. So we did a little research for you, Melanie, and I know that you, Leanne, also looked into this. I never have had an HSA. I never had one, but um, there are some websites out there with a lot of information around them. There's HSA Bank, HSA Administrators, which you can open up a Vanguard fund. A lot of times, if you ha- if you ha- if you find an HSA account that allows you to invest those dollars you need to have a minimum in the account. So just make sure that that's, you're okay with that. That's the gist, right? Is there anything yeah, else no, I should say? There was actually a white paper that I found. Uh, Morningstar reviewed the top 10 largest providers uh, last June. And they looked at it through the lens of like best spending vehicle to cover medical cost, and then investment vehicles for future medical expenses. And there are some HSAs that allow you to um, invest in ETFs or admiral funds through a brokerage window. So that's something, you know, definitely to look at. Um, I didn't come across any websites where you could compare. That would be actually a really great startup idea, I think. But um, I did I did find that some of the criteria to look, you know, sort of assess an HSA or number one, you want to look for no fees or, or at least low fees. Um, it sounds like Melanie already has zero fee, so that's great. And then number two, you want to look for great investing options, ones that offer a brokerage window. And then finally, an HSA that earns at least some interest in an FDIC-insured account. I think it's great that she's even thinking along the lines of trying to invest her HSA dollars. That's really taking your money to the max. You could save a lot of money. It's like $3,400 a year. Are you going to retire early, Melanie? I think you can probably at this rate. Keep us posted. You're really raising the bar for us here on the show. I really appreciate this. Leanne, thank you so much. This has been really fun to do with you. I I knew it would. And I'm sorry I hogged the mic a little bit, a lot actually. I want to share with listeners where we can find you and anything um, that you're working on right now. So you can follow me at at Leanne A. Wong on Twitter or check me out. My website is www.leannewong.com. And you're also doing some really great Facebook lives, I'll just brag, where you're giving great tips around career and co- you know, uh, success and you're bringing on guests sometimes. So you're really doing some important work and you know accessible work, which we really appreciate. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. This was so much fun. 